We're going to take a look this morning at 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. Uh, but to really get an understanding of 1 John and to get an understanding of John himself, we need to do a little bit of background here. Uh, there's some debate amongst Bible scholars as to the exact date that John has written. Uh, there's a school of thought that says that the entire Bible was written and complete before the year 70, uh, which was the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. Uh, but most scholars believe that 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book Gospel of John, as well as Revelation, were all written towards the end of the first century in the 90s, in that period of time. And while there, you can make a case for both, I would say the evidence probably weighs a little more strongly in that this was written later, towards the end of the first century. And with that in mind, that really, really changes the perspective of the book of First John and John's perspective as he's writing this. And so most of us are familiar with the chronology of the Gospels and the book of Acts. And so keeping that in mind... We need to remember that the book of Acts ends uh, in the early 60s. Paul is still alive, but he's in prison in Rome. History tells us he is released and imprisoned again and finally executed later. Uh, Peter is still alive. In fact, a number of the disciples, original 12 disciples, are still alive. But this is the 90s. And so as John is sitting there towards the end of his life, he has a lot to reflect back on. Uh, Peter is dead. Paul is dead. In fact, all of the apostles at this point in time have died. And all of them have died martyrs' deaths. Some quick and clean like Paul, some torturous and long like Peter, Andrew, and others. These are some of John's closest friends. And if this is indeed written in the 90s, which I believe it to be, that means John also, whether he was an eyewitness or not, we don't know, but at least knew about and experienced the pain of seeing Jerusalem destroyed, the temple gone, and that whole way of life over forever. John is now living in Ephesus at this time, which is in modern-day Turkey. And so everything he knows is gone. The Roman Empire's attitude towards Christians has changed quite dramatically. We have Nero uh, in the 60s, now we're to the time of Domitian, who is also a very anti-Christian emperor. He's the one that would eventually exile John to Patmos, which happens after he writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, where he writes the book of Revelation. But John is there in, in Ephesus. He has seen more than any other apostle. He knows that all of his friends now are dead. Jesus has gone back to heaven some 60 years now before this. And he sees the church of which he is now the senior member of beginning to drift. And beginning to drift into some false ideas and some false teachings, as so easily happens. You know, a lot of times we, we look back at the book of Acts in particular during that time and think, boy, if only it was like that again. If only we had the apostles here again. But, man, they had trouble after trouble after trouble. And John is dealing with trouble here even now. And the church is now spread throughout the entire Roman Empire, and at this point, probably far beyond the borders of the Roman Empire. And John is here in Ephesus, a major city. By the way, this is one of the cities that 
Revelation was written to. So the seven churches that were on that circuit, Ephesus was one of those seven churches. And so just to kind of get an idea of that whole world that he was in. So what was going on at the church at this time? You know, Paul and other New Testament writers dealt with some of the Judaizers. How they were saying, you must go back to the Old Testament law before you become a Christian. you got to be circumcised. you got to follow this. you got to follow that. And a lot of those things have been dealt with. But now what we're facing here in the church is we're not having just first-generation converts. We're now having people that their parents were Christians and now they're Christians. Their grandparents and parents were Christians and now they're Christians. And so they didn't see Jesus firsthand. They didn't know him personally as John and some of the others would have known. And so we're coming to a different generation. And they're living in this world of Greek and Roman thought. Uh, which is very much opposed to Christianity. And so as John writes this letter, just a few of the things that are creeping into the church that he deals with, not directly by name, but you can see the ideas that he's dealing with here, are Gnosticism and Doceticism. And I'll explain those briefly as they relate to what we're going to be reading about. Gnosticism, an ancient heresy, is essentially is this idea of a dualism. The idea that everything that is matter that is physical, is evil. Everything that is spirit is good and is right. And this led to some wild ideas amongst Christians. One extreme, they would go to this form of of absolute asceticism or this absolute rejection of everything that's physical since it's all evil. And, And they would abstain from anything, eat the minimum amount of food and live with the minimal amount of comfort, the minimal amount of sleep, you know, that kind of a lifestyle. And then there's the absolute other extreme, that of indulgence, where it's, well, if all matter is evil anyway, who cares? Just live it up, do whatever you want. No matter of sinful things, it didn't make any difference, because, hey, it's all bad anyway, right? And so this idea was creeping into the church. And an offshoot of this was this doceticism, which is this belief about Jesus. This is the idea that Jesus only appeared to be a man, appeared to be human. Well, sure, sure, he was God, but he wasn't really fully God and fully man. He was just God that looked like a man. And so as that idea began to spread into the church, um, a lot of people were getting led astray by that. And so with those things in mind, John, towards the end of his life, writing in Ephesus, looking at the church, seeing how far they have strayed, he opens with this. So we'll read the entire chapter here. It's only ten verses, and then we'll start going through it a little slower. So 1 John chapter 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed and we have seen it, that we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, this is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in Him. If we say we have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, 
We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, John just, he doesn't mess around. He just gets right to it. Very black and white, plain and simple. It's you're you're for God, you're against God, boom, boom, boom. He's very straightforward. And so breaking this up here, we can see a pretty natural break between verses 1 and 4 and then verses 5 through 10 of this chapter. And really, you could go 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, but I'm trying to keep it simpler here and just stay within chapter 1. So looking at verses 1 through 4, John is dealing directly with a lot of these heresies and false teachings that he's seen in the church. And really, while we don't see these exact same things today, the same general idea of creating a God that makes sense to us, of creating this false God, this idea of a God that that we can understand, that we can wrap our minds around, that was exactly what these people were doing. They couldn't understand the idea, nor can we, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, 100% God, 100% man. And so they try to simplify it. We see a lot of the cults today do things like that. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons will try to say different things to try to make it work. And even Christians at times, we, we tend to fall into a heresy, sometimes innocently, but still it's not a good thing, obviously, when we think about who is Jesus. And so John comes out here very clearly, very plainly, and declares to us who Jesus is. And so he tells us here, number one, is that Jesus is fully God. So he starts right here in verse one. What was from the beginning? Now, what does he mean, beginning? This is the same word, beginning, that he uses in the Gospel of John. This is the very beginning of all things. This is not the beginning of the church. This is the beginning of all things. What was from the beginning? So Jesus, from the beginning. He goes on then, calls Jesus the word of life at the end of verse 1. Verse 2 is even plainer. The eternal life that was with the Father. Okay, that's pretty pretty clear there as well. Verse 3 also, he says, with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other places in Scripture, we look at the idea of the Son and the Father in that relationship. We can't help but think of that in human terms, uh, but for the Jewish mind, for this mindset, the idea of the Son is not that he is subordinate to the Father, or not as good as the Father, but he is an equal to the Father in status and in power. And so we see that here very clearly. So John is laying out here, without excuse, that Jesus is fully God. There is no other way to do it. You can't say he's a God. You can't say he is a lesser God, as some Gnostic thoughts would say. Uh, You can't say he is one amongst the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods that would have been so popular in that day. But Jesus is God. And so he makes that very, very clear here. But along with this idea and combating Gnostic philosophy, he makes the point very clearly that Jesus is fully man. Now John was with him. John was an eyewitness to these events. He was with Jesus throughout the entirety of his ministry. He was with Jesus at the cross. He was with Jesus after the resurrection. And he has been walking with Christ ever since, for the last 60 years since Jesus went back to heaven. And so he says here in verse 1, What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands, Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. We have touched him. We have heard him. We have seen him. He spent at least three years with Jesus, day in, 
and day out. You read some of those accounts in the Gospels, but you've got to think about all the stuff that's not written in the Gospels, all the things that John would have seen and would have heard and would have experienced in living with Jesus day after day after day. Verse 2 again, he says, We have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. So he says, we are physically seeing this. Again, the Old Testament idea of God, and specifically God the Father, is this idea that God is invisible. You can't see him. Remember God and Moses. You know, Moses says, I want to see you. He says, you can't see me. You will die. And so there's this idea that Jesus, while he is fully God, is also fully man, because John says, I've seen him, I've touched him, I have heard him. So he makes this very clear that Jesus is fully God, Jesus is fully man. And, and then thirdly here is that Jesus revealed himself to us. You know, Jesus didn't just come and, and hide off somewhere and do his thing, but Jesus revealed himself to us. So he says that there in verse 2, he was revealed to us. And why? We also declare to you, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so Jesus came and revealed himself to John, revealed himself to the apostles, revealed himself to the people at that time, so that our joy may be complete, that we may understand and know why Jesus came, what was the purpose of him coming. And so again, I, I love the very bluntness of John as he writes this. He just doesn't pull any punches. He just goes right in and just tells everybody exactly what's going on. This is who Jesus is. And this is why he came, and this is what's going on. Uh, a very different style from Paul, a very different style from Peter and James and their writing, but a very powerful, powerful style. And again, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that, but we have to keep in mind here that John is much older. He's to the end, he, he's done with pretenses, he wants to make sure that as he leaves this earth, everyone is fully aware of who Jesus is as he gets ready to go as the last apostle, that everyone is aware of who Jesus is. You know, and an interesting thing as you think about this as well is that there's this idea in the early church, in that first generation of the church, that Christ would come during their lifetime. They expected that. In fact, Paul has to tell the church, you've got to do something. You can't just sit around waiting for Christ to return. But now all those people are gone. And we don't know John's innermost thoughts here. Did he still expect Christ to come in his lifetime? Maybe. Or was he thinking, you know, this might go on a little longer. And I can't just assume that God's going to come back, or Jesus is going to come back and set all things right. We've got to lay the foundation here. We've got to keep things going for this next generation that's already here. We've got to combat this false teaching. We can't just hang on until Christ comes, but we've got to lay the groundwork for future generations, and that's that's exactly what he's doing here. Because really, there's nothing new under the sun. We have different names for heresies and false teachings, and slightly different variations, but essentially, it comes down to a warping and distortion of what the Bible tells us, and especially a warping and a distortion of who Jesus is. So, if you don't understand and get who Jesus is right, right away, right at the beginning, everything else is going to be out of whack. So it doesn't matter how, what you think about this or that or anything else. If you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't understand what he did, the fact that he's fully God and that he's fully man, everything else is going to fall apart. And so that's the, the thing that John wants to just hammer into the believers' heads and into our heads as well, 
of this is who Christ is. He is not what you think he is. He is not what those Gnostics are telling you. He is not a lesser God. He is not any of those things. He is God Almighty, fully God, fully man. Then he gets into some practical things here, verses 5 through 10. So verse 5, this is very interesting. I never really noticed this until I began studying this this week. He says, now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. So he's, not, he's saying, this isn't my message. This is from Jesus. Remember, I was with him, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. This is his message now that we are giving to you. And this underscores the importance that this is not a sermon by John. This is not John's thoughts on a subject. This is the, the actual words of God. This is the Holy Scripture inspired by God through the writing of John. And God knew from before the dawn of time what John would be like, what his personality was like, what his writing style was like, and chose to speak through John at this time. And John makes that point here, that this is from Jesus. This isn't just my own thoughts and words, but this is from him. So again, in very direct terms here, he says that God is light. What does that mean? God is light. He says there is absolutely no darkness in him. Now, he's not talking directly about light and darkness as far as the illumination and darkness. He's talking more of what is good and what is evil. God is everything that is good, everything that is right, everything that is holy is God. And there is absolutely, John says, no darkness in him. There is no sin. There is no absence of holiness, no absence of righteousness, no absence of good or right in God. Everything about him is good and is right. And again, this is a direct attack against the Gnostics. Spiritual things are not all good. God is good. Only God is good. Everything else in all of creation is not so good compared to God. God is good. There is nothing in him that is wrong. Now this might seem a very elementary, simple concept, and it should be to Christians, but we often forget this sometimes. We think that there's at times, the sense of fairness that supersedes God. Well, God, you can't do that. That's not fair. God, how can you do this? How can you take this person? How can I be sick with this? How can I have lost that? You That's not fair, God. We often think somehow, even if we're not spelling it out with words, that there is a some standard of what is good and right above God. And John here reminds us that, no, God is light. God is good. There is nothing else that supersedes that. God is one and everything. And there is absolutely no darkness in him. There is no unfairness in God. There is no unrighteousness in God. There is absolutely nothing even remotely close to wrong in God. And that's what we have to remember as Christians when we go through difficult times that nothing that is happening to us is because God is sinful or because God is wrong or because God fell asleep at the wheel or because God forgot. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Again, a very simple concept, but one that we so easily forget. Moving on to verse 6, he says, If we say, meaning that this is what people often say and think, and we still say this today, we have fellowship with him. Yet, we walk in darkness, we are lying, and not practicing the truth. So notice he says, if we say, he's speaking about the church here, believers. 
if we as believers are saying, hey, we have fellowship with them, sure, sure, we love God, we're with them. And this idea of fellowship, which is often misused word today in the church, but this close kinship together. We are close with God, we do things with Him, we recognize uh, who He is and what He is, and there's this close association. If we, so if we say that, but we're walking in darkness, we're walking in sin, we're living a lifestyle that is blatantly opposed to Christ, blatantly opposed to God, blatantly opposed to everything that is right, and that's what darkness is. You know, when we set up the word evil a lot of times as something that is really, really, really bad, and darkness and sin and as things that are just really bad, and we often overlook little sins and little things. But remember the standard here. God is light, there's no darkness in him. And so if we walk in darkness, if we walk in ways that are contrary to God and who he is, that's what John is saying here. He says, if we say we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, does that mean if we sin at all? No. The, the term walk here is important. This has the idea of continually walking in darkness. Sorry, continually being in darkness. So you're walking in it. It's not that you stepped in it, recognized it as darkness, and stepped out of it. Oh, that, that wasn't right. Repent of it and move on. Walking in darkness means you recognize it's darkness and you're going headlong into it. That, that's a big difference there. And we're seeing that more and more within so-called Christians today. Now, ultimately, we don't know everybody's hearts. We don't. Only God knows that. Um, but I personally can think of many, many people that claim to be Christians that are walking in darkness. They're walking in lifestyles of blatant, open, sinful things. Yet they claim to be Christians. I think almost every single person that I've ever shared the gospel with, with few exceptions, claims to be a Christian. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. A lot of them aren't, and it's easily understood that they aren't, and talking to them further. But a lot of people think they are Christians. A lot of people claim to be Christians. A lot of people can even say the right words, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're Christian. John here is making it very clear that if you say you have fellowship with God, but yet you're living a lifestyle of blatant, open sin, it says you are lying, and you are not practicing the truth. That's, that's a gut punch, really, for the church. But that's what the church needed to hear at that time. That's what the church needs to hear today. There is no compromise with sin. There is no, well, I can have this sin and this sin and this sin, and, but I'll still do this for God and follow God over here. Again, John's standard, light, darkness. God is light, no darkness. We can't walk in darkness and be in the light. There is that absolute separation there. He goes on to verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All right, so here's the opposite now. So instead of walking in darkness, here he says, if we walk in the light, so we're living a life that is honoring to God, that is going along with God and his character and who he is. Does that mean we're perfect in everything that we do? No, that is not what this means. But again, the walking in the light is that we are purposefully trying to publicly and privately live a life that is pleasing and honoring to him. So if we walk in this light, and again he reminds us, as he himself, that is Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. True Christian fellowship is when we are all walking in the light, not walking in darkness, not one in darkness and one in light, but when we are all walking in the light, that is where we can have true Christian fellowship. 
But why? Because we're so great? Because we're so smart? Because we figured out the secret? No. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So there's that reminder there that the reason we can walk in the light, the reason that we do walk in the light as Christians, is not because of how great we are, but because of how great Jesus is. Because of what he has done when he cleansed us from sin. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now John would have a very unique perspective on that. He saw the blood of Jesus dripping off the cross as he stood there with Mary, the mother of Christ. I can imagine the emotions, the fear, the anguish, the confusion in John's mind at that time. It has to be flashing back to him as he writes these words. And as he remembers how powerful that was when he literally sees the blood of Jesus. There was probably, maybe, I don't know, could have been a few left, but certainly no apostles left. Maybe no other eyewitnesses of the crucifixion left but John at this time. He saw He saw the anguish that Jesus went through, the blood that was shed that cleansed us from our sin. He knows firsthand, this is not because I'm such a great guy. This is because he's such a great guy, because he did this for me. And that's what he's wanting us to understand here uh, so powerfully. And it's hard to see this in, in writing just today. When you get an email or a text or something, it's hard to see emotions and inflections and things. But you got to see, just feel the emotion as he, as he pins this out, uh, of how powerfully he feels about this. So with this reminder in verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Yeah, I don't sin. I don't hear that often, but I have heard people say that. Maybe you have too. No, I don't, I don't sin. I'm good. You know? Sometimes even Christians, or people that claim to be Christians, make that claim. No, I don't sin anymore. I'm a Christian. Good. Well, John says, uh, we say we have no sin. We're deceiving ourselves. And notice he didn't say we're deceiving anyone else, just ourselves. We're only deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. We have sin. We are sinners. Because who's the only one without sin? We've got to go back to the beginning of this section. God. God is light. There is no darkness in him. Is there darkness in us? better believe there's darkness in us. And without the shed blood of Christ, there will only be darkness in us. So if we make this assumption that we, are, we, are, we don't have any sin, we're good. We are just deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And this is one of those famous verses here, verse 9, that I remember from like Awana, and a lot of you probably remember from Bible memorization things. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, so John here making a very profound, true statement here. He says, if we confess our sins, confess our sins to who? To each other? No, this is the idea of confessing our sins directly to God. But what does it mean to confess our sins? Sometimes we can confuse the words uh, confession and forgiveness. And we ask one time, to have our sins forgiven by Christ. And they are. And the moment we're saved, that idea of justification, our sins are forgiven and washed away. Confession, though, is different. Because we're going to continually sin. And so we confess our sins to God. We are saying, I am in complete agreement with you that what I am doing is wrong. And I'm going to stop doing that. I agree with you. I'm confessing that. So you have someone on trial and they confess to a crime. They're saying, I agree with you, judge. Yes, I did this. I am wrong in doing this. And so here it says, if we confess our sins to Christ, 
What does he do? He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we don't have to lie and say we don't sin. Because we do sin. We will sin. We're not, again, we're not talking about walking in darkness. We're talking about stepping in darkness, getting out of that. But even if we were walking in darkness, we confess that to him. And he is faithful. Does he have to be faithful? He doesn't owe it to us to be faithful. He does have to be faithful because he said he will be faithful. But I mean, God owes us nothing. What have we done? So, God, you got to do this. I did this. We often think that that's the way God works sometimes. If I say this, or I do this, or I go here, or I we try to find some trick in the system, then again, a lot of false teachings today are all built on a bunch of lies and tricks. And Well, if you do this, God has to do that. That's, that's not the way it works. God does this because that is who he is. That is what he has extended to us. He has extended to us his faithfulness and his righteousness to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we are in the darkness unless Christ cleanses us from that darkness. We are continually there until we get on the same page as him. Until we understand that it's not us that walks in the light. It is God that walks in the light. We walk in darkness. We recognize our sin. We recognize our sinful lifestyle. And we appeal to him. And only to him. And verse 10, if we say we don't have any sin, this is powerful. We make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Oh, I don't have any sin. I, I, I don't struggle with sin. I, I'm good. Liar, John says. You are a liar. We all struggle with sin. And, and this really puts us all on the, the same even plane as Christians, isn't it? There is nobody that doesn't struggle with sin. And sometimes there are those that we know that struggle with more open sins, more obvious sins than we might. But that doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. We have to continually be in this state of mind that John is explaining here in 1 John 1, that we are sinners. We are prone to walk in darkness. We are prone to stick our foot in darkness just to see what happens. We are continually doing that. We are foolish, left to our own devices. But God is faithful, and he is just, and he is righteous, and he will cleanse us from that sin because he is in the light. We will never reach a point in our life. But John here is probably in his 90s, maybe a little younger, maybe a little older, but somewhere in there. He's an old man by this time. Does he claim to be without sin? Absolutely not. We'll never reach a point in our life where we don't sin anymore. And I got it. Good. I can just coast it. There's no coasting in the Christian life. There's no thinking that, well, everything's okay. I'm good now. I've made it. I don't struggle with this anymore. I can let my guard down now here. I can go to this place again. I can watch this again. I can do this again. No. Sin is always there. That darkness is always there. And so we have to continually be in this understanding that God must cleanse us from our sin. We must confess our sin to him and have that cleansing from him. And then when we turn around and walk away, we sin again. We have to go and confess that sin to him, be cleansed from that again. Now, Christ paid for our sins once and for all, but we continue to step into sin. We continue. To, we can't fall into those lies, the lies that the people in John's time believed, the Gnostics and the Doists and all these other 
people at that time that sin is not a big deal, sin is not an issue, big issue, and it's, it's okay to do this, and twisting scripture and twisting logic to the point of where it's acceptable to do whatever you want to do. John makes it very clear. That is not an option for the Christian. And today we see this encroaching on the church more and more and more and more. And just this last weekend, uh, I saw a couple news stories, one good, one, well, it ended up good, but had kind of a bad tongue to it. The Presbyterian Church in America, or of America, they're the, uh, the good Presbyterians. The Presbyterian Church USA, they're the not-so-good Presbyterians. Anyway, they had their annual convention, and they came out um, strongly in support of a very biblical statement against homosexuality and against you know, all those other issues related to that. And that was very encouraging. There was a little bit of debate, but it was by far like a two-thirds majority that said, no, 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 we're not, we're not doing that. Then interesting, interestingly enough, there's a smaller denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, uh, which I know there's a few in northeast Nebraska. They're not real big or popular. But they had their convention in Omaha. This was on like a national news thing I saw. And they had to expel a church and expel a pastor from their congregation because he was diving into that whole homosexual thing. And they had a, a gay marriage at the church. And, I mean, the, and so they said, no. Get out. So they made a, wrong, a good move, but a very controversial move that, of course, angered people. Now, all these issues, there's Christians, or at least people that say they're Christians, walking in darkness, claiming that, oh, this is okay, this is good. This is, no, we have to do this. We have to compromise. We have to go there. But we've got to go back to First John. We've got to go back to the last apostle here that tells us from the very words of Jesus, as he says there in verse 5, that we cannot walk in darkness. God is light. We must walk with him. We must stay with him. There is no compromise. There is no shortcuts. We must continually repent of our sins and turn back to him. Anything less will end in failure. Anything else will end in destruction. God is our only source of hope, our only one we can cling to. If we for a moment think we've got it all together, we're not struggling with sin, remember John's words, you're a liar. He says you are a liar. You are deceiving yourself. And it is too easy for us to do that. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are wise and we are not. And we are frequently not. And Lord, as we see this reminder from the book of 1 John today, this could have been written today. We are just as deceived and just as foolish today as people. And sadly, Many times we are just as deceived within the church. We're able to convince ourselves that sin is no longer a problem, or certain sins are okay, and we haven't learned much in 2,000 years. Lord, thank you for your patience and mercy towards us. We are most undeserving of it. But Lord, it is because you are faithful and righteous that we can have hope and we can have life in you. Lord, be with us this week. Help us to reflect on, remember this passage. May we continually check ourselves as we step into the darkness. And Lord, by all means, if we are walking in darkness, pull us out of it. For you are light. In your name we pray.